Live from the Table, a Comedy Cellar affiliated podcast. Coming to you on Sirius XM 99 Raw Dog and on the Laugh Button Podcast Network, this is Dan Natterman. With me via Zoom, coming from his home in Westchester, I presume, is uh, Noam Dorman, the owner of the world famous Comedy Cellar. Welcome, Noam. That's me, Dan. I, I, I feel like Archie Bunker. What are you doing in my chair? <laughs> well, you're not here, so I took the chair. Right. And there's not much you can do about it from all right. in Ardsley. Can you hear me well? We hear you perfectly fine. Also here, Miss Periel Ashenbrand, author, comedian, as well as the producer, some say, of our show. Others would say she is uh, more of a booker. But uh, either way, here she is, Periel Ashenbrand. And of course, we have uh, the sound engineer, the finest one in town, Miss Nicole Lyons, behind the scenes. She doesn't say a lot, but when she does, you can be sure it's worth hearing. How's everybody? Oh, I'm okay, Dan. All my kids have the flu, but my 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 son's curriculum is is whack. <laughs> Are you at home be- because of the flu? Because your kids are sick, and you? I don't know. Yeah, my 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 kids have the flu, and I've like you know I've been I've been. Leaving them, my son has 104 fever. It's crazy. I need to be home with my kids. Well, that's a, that sounds like a pretty high fever, but I guess for a kid, 104 is not as bad as it would be for an adult. This is Ben that has the 104, the youngest one. Yeah, but they but they've all they've all been sick. Uh, um, it's crazy. It's like the, it's crazy. Well, that's parenting for you, and I'm sure Perielle has stories like that. She only has one kid, of course. I um, I want to know who takes issue with calling me the producer. Well, we've had that discussion. Noam was had some uh, misgivings about that title for you, thinking that it maybe wasn't. Uh, well, Perio, you tell accurate. us what a producer tells what a producer does, and I will tell you whether you whether you qualify. Go ahead, big shot. What does a producer? Well, do? I first of all, I guess first and foremost, I um, deal with the bickering back and forth between the two of you, and try to keep the balance of the show. So that means enough comedians to keep Dan happy and enough journalists and professors. And that's what a producer does. I'm not finished keeping the balance of the show. Yeah, that's one of the things. Then I book all of the guests. I so you so you're also the booker. I am also the booker. Um, I keep the calendar of the show. Um, I also have to email and text message you multiple times a um, week to make sure that you've looked at the calendar. Um, I I research the guests. I, I field hundreds of emails from you. Okay, fair enough. You convinced me. You, you can be a producer. <laughs> well, no, what else, what else might a producer do uh, in your in your mind that that Periel's not doing? A producer. Um... I'm not finished with the list of oh, things that I do. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go I also ahead. C- contribute handsomely to the show. Step in when um, people are missing. Um, sometimes, you know, Noam doesn't show up. I'll, I'll step up. I, I think that probably in my three years now of doing this, I, other than when I'm in Israel, I probably have missed maybe one episode. So I'm here. No, no one's I'm... quarreling with your attendance record. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, Noam, uh, Noam, I, I had asked you the question, what, what might a producer be doing that Perel's not doing in your mind? Um, 
I think your producer, you know, I might not know what a producer does. I thought a producer like oversees the the technical aspects of the show. Um, well, I do liaise decisions, but you know what, Perel, I, I stand corrected. You are a producer. Thank you. Okay. Well, I guess we've, um, we've put that to bed. <laughs> Noam, I do want to give you a compliment. I, I, I don't know if you want to discuss your kids' curriculum, but I want to give Noam a compliment. Uh, uh, the band on Monday was, it's always very good, but I want to specifically note that you're, They've integrated a new song into their repertoire. Just as a review, every Monday night, Noam and his band play music at the comedy at the restaurant uh, upstairs from the comedy cellar. So they they've integrated a new song into their repertoire. Bohemian Rhapsody, of course, the Queen classic. Uh, excellent. Well done. Uh, you got all the parts in there. I was like, I was thinking when you started singing it, this is going to be an utter disaster because it's such oh, a I thought it was a disaster. So the first second time we actually heard, um, um, performed it live and I, and I didn't think it was very good, but um. I, the only thing is, is it's hard. Like some of the parts without a keyboard seem like, all right, this is very tough to do without a keyboard. But I think you did it as well as you could. No, that's not the problem. The pro well, the percussionist forgot. Uh, we, we had an arrangement. Percussionist forgot the arrangement. And um, there's a lot of vocal parts. They're very, very difficult. It's like we, we had to play it, I would say, nine or ten more times. And then uh, I think you, you could you then you could judge it. Well, maybe this is something only a musician would know, but it sounded pretty good to me. Other than the fact that I'm like, I think this could use a keyboard. You know, some of the stuff with the guitars didn't sound right. But vocally, I thought it was good. The part where you went, Manifico, you know. Like, doo, 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 doo. Was that good? Manifico. I thought it was very good. Yeah, I thought it was quite good. And again, I was like saying, oh, my God, this is going to be horrible because it's so hard, hard to do. But uh, but I thought it was good anyway. And I don't know if anybody else complimented you or said anything. Um, not on that song. We get we get comments. We had two I had two different um two different customers uh tell me that they we made them cry. They were so so moved Her by tears it. tears of joy, I gather. Yeah, the music was really good on uh Monday. Please welcome American writer, actor, and comedian who's appeared on in film, television, and radio. This is just from Wikipedia from Kalamazoo, Michigan. It's, Moses Storm is here. I don't know why the emphasis is on American. Well, that's just what I read in the <laughs> I know. Wikipedia. Moses supposes his toes are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. Moses supposes his toes aren't roses, as Moses supposes his toes to be. You know this, Moses? I just know the dance, the full <laughs> choreography, and I will be doing it. On this Moses podcast. Storm <laughs> is a new comedy seller comic. I guess he's been here about a year. I No, even less, I think. Even less. Um, July. Still very green, still... Nervous to perform here still. Well, yeah. don't be nervous. Noam told us before you got here that he really likes you. And and so I think you're you're pretty well. Well, well, I mean, I don't, Moses, this is the thing. Um, Dan, <laughs> uh, Dan wanted you very badly on the podcast. I was happy to have you on, of course. But uh, but Dan said something he's never said about any other comic in my life with him. Dan thinks you're going to be a big star. You. Real? You've never said that? Well, I, I have said that. I think I said that about Jordan Jensen. I, I said I, I didn't say she's going to be a big star. I think I said I think there's a reasonable chance. I think Moses. Yes, I think Moses. <laughs> I think Moses has what it takes. I didn't I don't know if those were my exact words, but Moses is young. He's good looking. He's got a good backstory and he's already making some noise. So putting those things together. Uh, that was my conclusion. I can't predict that with certainty, of course. <laughs> right, but you don't say it to a lot of people. So I, well, I don't lot. say it to. I've him. never heard him say it to anybody, and he did, and he also said it supportively. He like he didn't say it like you like he would normally say that. You know, that <laughs> well, I didn't say it at all. Like, hey, LA well, way where I'm it's like, yeah, this guy's nothing. gonna be okay. I don't think I said it at all. I think I emailed. <laughs> 
So yeah, you couldn't yeah, tell what tone of voice I was using because I was emailing. Well, let's pull up the email. I was, I was gr gritting my teeth as I was doing so. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in italics. Every time I tell people that we lived in a converted bus growing up, especially in L.A., people are like, oh, my God, kill. <laughs> I love that for you. Because I think you are picturing the HD TV version of a bus, where it's like a, it's like a young couple from Portland. Some's a little off in their relationship. And they're always like, hi, I'm Tracy, and my husband, also named Tracy, we fixed up this old bus because we stopped having sex, and large construction projects are the only way that I know how to make the time move. Great. Those buses are great. They're built with time, money, and, and sexual frustration that crushes it into a diamond. The bus that my parents built, with no skill, no money, I would love to see an HGTV show realtor try to sell it. You know those ones that have the kind of plastic surgery where it looks like the wind hurts? All right, Greg Donovan, I know you were looking for a two-bedroom, two-bath. Instead, I want to show you this no-bedroom, no-bath, hot diesel tube that has more miles on it than we are currently to the sun. Immediately, you're going to notice this diesel smell. Uh, I don't know how carbon monoxide leaks work. I just know that sometimes you'll be driving, all the air will get wavy, and you'll wake up in a new state. Uh, mountains now. And Moses is, um, but his backstory is that he grew up in a cult, in an unsuccessful cult. Because I think the follow-up question is people are like, well, which one is there a Netflix special about it? But no, it just, it never worked out. They never had any followers. So it was My just parent, you guys? There was three families in the cult total. And um, my mom... My mom's great. My mom's uncle. So my great uncle is the one that actually started it. He's maybe the head of this religion church. And then um, my mom got my dad involved in it. And then there was a, a third family that was in Texas. And we live. We each each of us lived in a, in a bus, like a Greyhound bus, not a tour bus, but a bus that they tried to convert into an RV. It was never the quality of a, what you would see on HGTV, where it's like cabinetry work and and there's working plumbing it was just like a, a hellhole just a hot diesel tube and we would travel state to state city to city and street breach so i'll be on the street as as young as two by my earliest memories like with large neon signs screaming hellfire at people and witnessing for god and, and the government never stepped in and said well, this kid needs to be put in a foster home no i mean that's kind of the bummer about it is that no one cared the fbi didn't care like they never got big enough to ever be a problem if any official like yeah well no one's going along with that so we were never a new but you were living in a bus with no plumbing yeah. on the street that didn't attract the attention of authorities at all people would yell at us on the street never authorities but uh people would be like how could you do this to your kids uh when we would when we would I guess protests or street preach at spring break. People would would pee in bottles and throw it at us. Um, be like, why aren't your kids in school? Because also, I've never been to school in my life. And um, uh, a few times, CPS would come. A little bit later on, CPS. But that's, uh, Child Protection uh, Services. Yeah, but it was less about the cult stuff. And uh, it's like when the cult kind of fell apart, and my parents went their separate ways, and then my mom was very stressed with these five kids and no child support. And then CPS became a regular fixture in our life. 
But did, now, what, you never what, lived in a foster home, though. You lived with no, your parents. That was the thing. That was the, uh, the your mother. my siblings would always talk about running away when we were sentient enough to be like, well, this is obviously not right. Forget the ideology. Every time we're in Walmart, every time we're anywhere, people are yelling at us and saying that this is not right. And it's never going well. And my older brother, I remember him pulling us aside. Like, we can't run away because then we're going to go into foster homes and no one's going to adopt five kids. We won't get to stay together. So if we just ride it out, if we just hang around, then then we can at least stay together. Was the idea. Now, I, I would like more information. What 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 makes it a cult? It was it was obviously a Christian a Christian Christian based cult. It was and- a mix of Judaism and Catholicism. Um, I get I think extreme beliefs. Uh, I was very anti-government, anti-school, anti-establishment. I didn't go to a hospital until I was twenty. Uh, we were all home births, and it was uh, focused around the book of Revelation. So heavy doomsday cult. This is all going to be over. Why would you need to get a good job? Why would you need to save money? Why would you need to teach your kids how to read if this is all going to be over in like 45 minutes? But now we, we usually think of cults being led by some kind of cynical phony like L. Ron Hubbard or uh, uh, Jim, uh, Jim, uh, what's his name? Uh, Jones? Jones of Jones. Jim Jones yeah, where, where the guy at the top um, is profiting in some way either with money or sexually or whatever it is from his followers but you're describing this was a sincere belief thing um i definitely think that the cult leader uh and usually they're much more charismatic than my great uncle he was pretty off-putting if you saw him in a uh, just as a comic you know you wouldn't be rooting for him on stage and i think intimidation was probably his, his best thing but he wasn't hot for lack of a better term uh, and a lot of cult leaders are, they're at least like offbeat, like Jared Leto hot, where <laughs> 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 at least it's like, Oh, I get it. I get why you would want approval from someone that is attractive. Um, he wasn't attractive, short, fat, balding man, thick, thick Michigan accent. Um, and he was, he was a college football star when he got hurt. That's when he found God. That's when God told him that, uh, you are, you are the true prophet. So I, I, if I had to guess, you'd be like, oh, you're just trying to continue this identity. You still want to be a star. And you know your football career is over. You're not going to go to the NFL with the torn ACL. So maybe being the leader of this cult would be an identity. It could feed your ego. So if you never, you went, you were homeschooled. Uh, that's that's even generous. Because I know people that are homeschooled and they And then they get read. a decent, yeah. So you're yeah. saying you can't read? I learned. I, I uh, Eventually I learned. You, you read better than our, our dear friend Phil Hanley? Uh, yes, a, a little bit better, but I'm also dyslexic and dysgraphic. So those two, on top of no education, because there's great programs if you are dyslexic. There's like Sylvan Learning Center that if you act, you can do it right. But it was all those three things put together. Now, that, now, um, now obviously, this kind of street preaching is a great training ground for being a performer, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was never a problem... I mean, writing always needed work, but there was never a problem uh, getting on stage or projecting. It's a lot less nerves because at least it feels like audiences, especially here, are rooting for you to do well and they want it to be a good show. And I think when you come in and you have big neon signs that say like, you're headed for hell. Yeah, God saves, the world is going to burn. Like that is, you're already starting from a negative standpoint. And now do you, you believe in God still? No, I don't. I don't have anything. I think the closest thing, if I could choose, uh, it would be Judaism. 
Because, yeah, I just I agree with the, the tenants, but I'm never fully on board at something. And it's uh, pretty embarrassing because like, I do wish I had something. Have you been? Well, me, we, me and Noam don't have anything. I mean, we, we yeah, well, we're Jewish by birth, but we don't believe in it. But you're culturally Jewish. Yes, but no, but 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 uh, Moses could if, if, if he wants to. <laughs> Moses, you're not allowed to say that. <laughs> uh, but if Moses, if you want to be culturally something, you could certainly do it. Yeah. You don't have to believe in it. Culturally... You want to come over for Noam's house for Seder next year? You're welcome. Yeah. I think I, I think what he's saying. You can read the four I, questions. I mean, yeah. Or you can. I don't know if you can read. I, the four I, questions. I think you're saying you're saying that you, you, cra- you crave some spirituality in your life. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I crave. I get I totally understand why people why religion works. for them. It gives answers for the unanswerable. Well, unfortunately, the answer is this. We're doomed. We're doomed and there's nothing? Yeah. Unfortunately, that is the answer. Have you been reading my family's signs? <laughs> uh, but your family <laughs> believe that even but th- that we're doomed, but that we're going someplace after. Yes. So that's where we part ways. I believe we're just plain doomed. So it's <laughs> just dust. You're nothing. That's what I'm, I, I believe. Yes. I think that is a likely uh, right. Correct. I don't believe that. Uh, believe, you know, there's energy and energy has to go somewhere. <laughs> right. Because energy can either be created nor destroyed. So, yeah, oh, your atoms will will live on uh-huh. if that's any consolation. But but your what? But your consciousness, I w- w- likely will not. Right. But you're but you're only 35 years old. So, you know, it's not so bad for you. Thirty two. Right. I've been burning the candle at both ends. Do you so have hopefully a, you have some time left? But <laughs> do you have do you have like a death wishes, meaning like, oh, a bucket I'm going to I want to. Oh, no, oh, like a like, final. I don't have any final. What do they call that? Final arrangements in your will? No, what are wishes? your wishes? Well, yeah, I don't have a will. I don't have a will. Affairs in order. But no, there's a, in the will. It's called something where you. Yeah. Well, no, you have a will. So I assume you you are you are they putting you in a box or, 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 or burning you up? Oh, um, I don't think it's in my will, but I, I would like to be buried. Um, well, when my father was, uh, my father died, Ava, my father's wife, bought me a plot next to him. Oh, um, so I have a, I have a <laughs> plot, but, you know, now, um, you know, I have my family and my wife, so I, I don't know. It's just, it's just another thing that I'm going to fight with my wife about. Well, um, if you don't believe in anything, why do you need to be buried next to your family? That doesn't make right. any sense. I don't think he does. If I don't believe in anything, <laughs> nothing matters. I, I, I agree with you. Um, that if you, if you, but, but I, nevertheless, somehow I do care. Uh, I do care somehow. You know, I, I, I can't say it matters, but I do care. You don't have these like laundry lists for people that people like. I want to be cremated. I want you to take my ashes to this spot in Hawaii and spread it here. Right, because it's like, well, why you're not going to be around for that? So why would it matter? Do you want to? No, that doesn't matter. It, it, it wouldn't it, matter, but just the idea of being buried to me is creepy. Uh, not that I'll know, but yeah. everything that's everything creepy about death is burial related: coffins, skeletons, tombstones. Yeah, right. It's all the cremation. You you <laughs> you you don't have to deal with any of that. Right. Well, you're not dealing with any of it anyway, because you're not going to be here. That's correct. But I'm in, in thinking about it. What makes me uneasy is burial. Yeah. And the fact that your body's just rotting and there's this fear that what if you came to life real quick <laughs> and then you went died? And the reason people are dead is because they're buried. I think the embalming Good. is what freaks me out at 
I mean, the Jews don't do this. You just go right into a wooden box. But when you have like the open coffin and they like shoot oh, yeah. you full of like formaldehyde and put makeup on you. They did that for my my grandpa. And I was like, why? Why are we doing? Yeah, the grandpa that was the cult leader. They, they... No, no, his no great just uncle. my grandpa. He's actually the cult leader's brother. And oh, okay. they did not talk their entire lives. And I was really nervous because this happened maybe two years ago. I was nervous that the cult leader was going to show up to honor his his dead brother. But he, he didn't. Did, did you have a sense growing up that this really sucks or were you like, oh, well, this is my life and it, I, I don't have a sense one way or the other? No, it was definitely this sucks all the time because there was there was it's, there's yelling, there's abuse, there's this just struggle of poverty, seeing my parents frustrated that it's never working out, We're always moving. We would get evicted from places and they'd be like, well, it was God's will that we got evicted. Now that's why we're going to Panama City, Florida. And from an early age, I had that thought that I think everyone comes to where you're like, oh, my parents, they they don't got this. So so how poor were you? Can you give us an example of just how dire the poverty was? Yeah. Uh, so our main food source, because food stamps really wouldn't cover what we is we would dumpster die for food. I would say, without exaggerating, 80% of our food came from the grocery store dumpster. So we just you go back in, in the grocery store, whatever they throw out that's expired or is about to expire, you take that and hopefully there's something in there that's not rotten, but maybe the expiration date is, is past. So it's usually just like a lot of one thing. It's either all fried chicken or it's all beets or it's all Hostess cupcakes. So there's some great things. Yeah, in as there, a kid, but... you must have enjoyed the Hostess cupcakes. Yeah. Yeah, there was uh, we weren't allowed to eat those. You see, in my house, so who who had it tougher? Right, were you allowed to eat trash? <laughs> <laughs> I never asked. How how old were you? So you know, you always hear stories about people grow very poor. We were so poor, but we didn't know. We were happy. You know, we we didn't know. It doesn't sound like that's the case here. No, how old were you before you were cognizant of the fact that the way you were growing up was was not okay? Um. Well, I was aware that we were poor pretty early on because my mom would constantly get caught shoplifting from multiple Walmarts, like to the point where there was honestly her Polaroid in Walmart and she would go back and steal that same one. And then I would be sitting with her when she gets pulled to the manager's office and they're waiting on the cops. And, and then so she would give this whole sob story, really like how I learned how to perform is from her. And she's like, oh, single mom, I have all these kids. You can't do this to me. And I'm just trying to make ends meet. Uh, we are so poor. And then she would lay out the facts. So I think that is really how I found out we were that poor. Um, and I think a lot she of- She wasn't bullshitting. She, what she was saying was true, correct? Uh, yeah, she would play it up. She would definitely perform. You know, definitely like if you get a speeding ticket. Well, also when you were watching TV and you were like, wait a minute, these people have a- We were not allowed to watch TV. Okay. Uh, we did somehow see the OJ chase. We had a TV, but yeah, it was only for our religious tapes because my great uncle would he would do keyboard music and he would and he would sing the sermons sometimes with like a talk sing. And um, where were you in the five kids? Second to youngest. So I, my other siblings, like, things did not work out or they I think they had it a little bit harder than I did. And they're having a harder time coping with it in adulthood. And I just got lucky just to see them make mistakes, see what it was like if you ran away, see what it'd be like if you, you tried all the drugs in the world and it not working out. So just by the benefit of the lineup, I was able to avoid some things. And when when were you on your own? When did you go out on your own and start making your own money and escape from all that? 
the cult fell apart around 2001 because uh, it was connected to the Andrew Yates story. Andrew Yates uh, believed that God was uh, going to save her kids if, if she killed her kids. And that was a pretty big trial, and it put a lot of heat on the religion and on the cult. So everyone was laying low at that point. Like, we're not going to go out and yell at people uh, for this. And Andrew then, Yates drowned five five children. Was that the story? Mm-hmm. It was all over the news, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Because um, because God told her to do it. That's right. And which is something I always heard growing up is that you're born pure. And then as you get older, your sin nature corrupts you. So, yeah, that was that was hard to swallow. I was like, mm. But there was a little part of me. I was like jealous of those kids. I was like, Oof, they did it. And then 2001, same time, my parents marriage has already fallen apart. This another blow of this very national trial. I made it was the biggest story of 2001 before the biggest story of 2001. And then our our cult leader came back into the picture after not seeing him laying low for five years. He came back into the picture and essentially gaslit my mom and was like, what are you doing? Why are you living this way? It's so poor. You guys need to get jobs in the workforce. So then I got a job at a, at a grocery store because it had a trash compactor, which means like she couldn't she couldn't dumpster dive at that one. It'd be so humiliating and be like, oh, my God, your mom's out back. So I, I kept applying at this one store because they had a trash compactor. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, then I was around kids my age for the first time, was like 16, 17. Wow. But I still fully believe in the cult, even though we had talked about running away, even though it was hard, even though it was like your parents are crazy. I 100 percent believed in their definition of God. I believed at that point I was going to hell. I was still writing letters to God and apologizing and trying not to masturbate, trying. And then um, then I fell in love with this girl at the grocery store who was just a, a very intelligent person. She's now a, a double Ph.D. And just hearing what I believed said back to me by her, someone I respected. And, uh, you know, you're horny, you're a teen. Uh, and just, just a really smart and sweet person, just hearing what I believed said out loud and her absorbing that information was enough to deprogram me. Wow. And that was enough. Yeah. It's been, oh, okay. Yeah. That's all bullshit. Yeah. I, I have another question. Um, I hope you don't mind. It's, it's just fascinating. What, so you grew up very, very poor and deprived. Like you have, you have like vivid recollections, like the first time you went to a nice restaurant, like these, these, these things were so delayed for you, right? Yeah. I so, actually got fired from my first restaurant job because we did not spend time in restaurants growing up. So I didn't understand the rotation of, of, of servers and how they're like, oh, you can't just seat everyone over there. So <laughs> they did all the training and it was Mexicali. It was on Ventura. It's like when I finally moved out here and everyone's hot there. <laughs> and they're, they're everyone's dating it's like one of those places where and uh it was very busy like and then there's a lot of like tv celebrities there and uh my very first week i got i got fired i did the training i finished it did my first shift and i just couldn't understand that you would need to spread people out that there's an order <laughs> to just the plates the check coming out you just brought like everything. At yeah. Once. <laughs> buddy, buddy, what are you, an idiot? Have you, have you been to a restaurant before? We oh, would go, sure. but it was so conditional. I remember we went to a Marie calendar and the most oh humiliating experience of my life. Uh, it was it was my younger sister's birthday. This is like a sad Norman Rockwell painting. <laughs> and the server came out and we're all sitting there. There's now there's the six of us 
sitting down at one table and we order one one piece of cornbread <laughs> with, with the candle in it and the server keeps going up to like sure you don't want anything you know and i no, i do not want anything no i'm stuffed like, we're just gonna get that and the server's so bummed that this six top is now I mean, you should so know him when he brings his his uh, kids out to dinner yeah the uh, the uh well it's a i mean the, the, the contrast i'm saying is rather striking you just between, like between the way his kids are being raised and and the way you were, but I mean that's what I would do now. If I had kids, I would, I would fill up the table. Moses, you have a girlfriend now. I do. Yeah. I was just thinking that this isn't like you cannot not close a deal with a story like this. Like, <laughs> uh, right, right. It's all it's all bullshit. You know, I had it so hard, but there is something that would make me feel better. <laughs> I mean, like, what are we gonna talk about? Oh, don't worry, I got this. The fact that he, yeah. looks, the fact that he looks like a young Don, Johnny Depp is not hurting. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a Kirkland brand Johnny Depp. This is a this is a Jet <laughs> Kirkland, Depp, like the Costco brand. We fell off. Be that as it may. Um, but yes, I think that the most harmful part of growing up that way is now is my adulthood now. It is you are right, Norm. That is, I think, like oh, it's a weird thing your parents do. You kind of just accept it, but. Something like having a, a girlfriend where you really do have to open up. You really do have to be vulnerable. You have to show them who you are. You're not performing on stage. Then then all the religious dogma, the isolation, because if you're not going to school, you're isolated from kids your age. Uh, all that stuff is manifesting. So I, th- as I would say it's harder now being out and alone than it was just the day to day in it. Have you done like severe therapy, like PTSD? Like, have you gone through any of that? No. You might want to. I've done some therapy, but not (laughs) enough. And it's a little embarrassing to say that. Um, But yeah, I've noticed comics are all talking about therapy now. Yeah. Uh, 20 years ago, nobody talked about being in therapy. Now every comic's got a therapy job. What's that? Maybe Woody Woody might have done it. But I'm just noticing like just watching comics here many of them have therapy jokes it's become sort of in now to talk about right and depression is, is yeah maybe popular. gary goleman opened the door i don't know uh that maybe gary goleman was the uh the one that did it but everybody seems to be talking about mental illness he went from state abbreviations to <laughs> yeah, no, fear he, mental illness. nobody followed suit on the state abbreviation but everybody seems to be following him at the mental illness thing well alabel yeah. too alabel has that documentary mentally al such a great time. Yeah, although Alu Bell, the Mentally Al um, documentary doesn't really get into like clinical mental illness. It's just, you know, you just see him as kind of the quirky, weird guy. Yes, I guess. It so. was a trend in specials for maybe the past five years is that you needed you needed to exploit your your tragedy. Whatever the one thing that happened, you needed to not exploit's a harsh word, but really lean into that. You couldn't just do well-written jokes. Like, like you can't do here. Your special had to have this this moment, this great tragedy. And I think the good comedians. Well, many did, not everyone, but. Uh, no, but it was a trend as far as like what's being written about. If you look at just like oh, what's 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 on Twitter and what's uh, what are articles being written about? It was it was mainly leaning. Well, Hannah Gadsby the, in yeah, particular. That was that was know, one of them that. Which that I think was the most that, extreme example was fine, but it was like everyone trying to copy that or be like, oh, that's handles. That's just a one woman show. We'll show you how to do it. I think that's where we maybe fell short a little bit. 
because the focus was the tragedy and not just the is it funny? Well, I mean, it's, you know, Noam and I have a similar opinion about the Gadsby special and the net, I guess it was called. Yeah, not not that funny, but certainly engaging. It's uh, and know. it's her. It was honest to her. It was great or them. And uh, yeah, I think it was the people that got jealous of Hannah's success that kind of tried to do their own thing. It's watered down version of it. And then those were some of the worst specials ever, because you can't just bump people <laughs> out. You have to you have to dig people out. You can say something that has levity, something that's hard, but you have to have the skill as a comic. This is why I don't talk about the murders on stage, because I'm just not talented enough as a comedian right now what to murders, dig people what, out. What, what murders? What? The, uh, um, in our cult, the way it fell apart oh, okay. with the with. Yeah, I, I'm not talented enough to pull off child murder, but I'm trying I agree with you about Hannah Gadsby. We've talked about it before, but it's always I, I really didn't like the um the hate that she got from a lot of the comedians. I don't know if it was jealousy, because I know the comedians tend to be also very technical snobs. Like they, you know, they 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 think that comedy should be done this way and they don't like props and they don't like this. And they and they were very, you know, they were very important to them that to define whether it was or wasn't comedy, as opposed to just a appreciating the fact that she did something that touched a nerve that bubbled up to wide to a wide audience without any hype or Madison Avenue promotion, whatever it was, this was basically a word of mouth thing. And uh, it's always been my opinion in, in any, uh, whether it comes music or movie or whatever it is that you have to respect that, you know, when, when something catches on, like, you know, it comes to my mind for some reason, like the first Batman movie with Michael Keaton, you know, it got all, it was so, there was so much hype about it. And then there was covers of Newsweek and Time. And everybody's like, oh, this is so good. It's so good. But it hasn't stood the test of time at all. Like, it, just, it just really wasn't that good. But somehow you can kind of pull the wool over sometimes with enough. And no, no, as a club owner, yeah. if a comic goes on stage and doesn't kill, doesn't get huge laughs, um, are you willing to entertain the possibility that maybe that comic is is engaging nonetheless? It's harder to judge as a comedy club owner somebody that's just um engaging but not killing with big laughs you oh yeah I, I, I can i can now i i can absolutely judge that and i'm actually i don't want to say names there, there's some comedians at the club who um i feel that way about if, if i go in the room and i find myself you know really drawn in and listening to every word and not bored and i'm a very easily bored person i've never been to a broadway show that i wish hadn't ended at the intermission. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really don't have a, a, a lot of interest in a lot of things. But um, if somebody can hold my attention for a ten or then then I will likely want to use that person. It, you know, I don't. I, that's that. I mean, if they go for laughs and there's no response from the audience, then they're striking out. That's awkward. Then I, I will mention awkward. a name because it's he's a big enough name is Al Franken. I felt that way about Al Franken would come here. Do you mind if I bring do you mind if I mention the name? No, uh, no, don't mention Al Franken. Go ahead. <laughs> no, it's too late. It's fine. I don't care about it. Um, I felt that way about Al Franken. He wasn't annihilating the way a lot of comedians annihilate the way the huge laughs that a lot of comedians will get. He you know, I haven't seen him here in a while. But I was like, this is really interesting. How often do you have a U.S. senator on stage, first of all, talking right. about going to Washington, his initial experiences, meeting, uh, you know, the senators, 
uh, you know, his experience in, in Congress. I thought, wow, this is pretty interesting. I think the audience probably would agree, though I, I couldn't necessarily tell because they weren't, it wasn't howls that uh, that I'd like to get on yeah. stage. Now, I well, like to hear those howls. You want to hear my opinion of the uh, Al Franken thing? or, or Yeah, you, yeah well, of course we do. So, so my opinion was this. The first time he came down, I thought it was exactly what you said. And I think part of that was because he hadn't been on stage for so long. And he had a, he, he his pace was, let's say his pace was a 10. He's a little bit faster. He had, he had a, a nervous, like, staccato-ness to him. He was hyped. Uh, for Al Franken, and and there was a certain electricity to it. I went back three weeks later, and if his pace had been a 10, he was now a 7.5. He was a little bit slower, a little bit less energetic, a little bit less uh, uh, snappy, and I no longer felt that same energy in the room. I th- it got a little bit lax, a little bit loose, not to the point where we stopped using him, but well, you couldn't stop own, using him, though. He was too big a name. No, we didn't stop. Well, we can't stop using him. Well, no, we could. But we, I still I still thought on the whole it was a plus to have a U.S. senator, have a celebrity. And he is funny. He, he, I mean, right. the, the guy's a talented guy. But it wasn't. It, it, there was something about when he first came, when his his own mood was like super alert uh, that I thought was better. So. You think so it's maybe as a club owner, I have to just sense that. That's magic in the air. You can't prove it one way or another, right? Yeah. Do you think it's the time that he took off from it if you're not working? Like, I know if you take two days off, you feel a little wonky getting back on stage. I know, like, as a musician, there's there's a, there's a, mat, like, we learn a song and you do it. And, you know, first couple of times it's, you go, and then, and then it clicks. And then the next, like, 10 times you do it, it's just awesome. And then, it loses the novelty of a new song in some way. I'm sure it's the same way with material. Yes. And then imperceptibly somehow you don't enjoy doing it as much as you did. And lo and behold, the audience then stops enjoying it as much as they did previously. And you can't prove why I suppose if you A-B recordings, you might be able to hear this breaks a little harder. You know, like, like you can look and you could probably find the differences, but it's, they're not apparent to you when you're performing, except that in some way, like I would tell the guys in my band, like you can't do a sad song if you can't conjure sadness in yourself. And you can't do a happy song if you're not feeling happy. And that's just the way it is. And, and you can't perform that set of yours unless you're really enjoying it and it's hard to keep enjoying it if you've done it a hundred times. Right. So yes, it's, it's really deep, this stuff, but it's real. Yeah. There really, you definitely feel that there's something that it could be your strongest bit or your closer, or whatever people like it. And they even would have even asked for it at some shows. If like, you're going to do this one. And if you just don't have the same excitement, yeah. it could feel it. You could hit it exactly right. You could be as loud as quiet, but, there is, yeah, there is a feeling to it. There is some sort of energy. Well, I wonder if like, uh, I mean, I'm obviously it's the same with big stars, you know, when Billy Joel is doing Piano Man, he, I mean, he must be thinking to himself, oh, good Christ, you know, this again. <laughs> right. But, but um, you know, I don't know if it's perceptible on a conscious level to the audience, but it, it's, it's hard to imagine. He's been doing that song for 50 years, not quite 50 years, but 40 years, maybe, maybe 50. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm at sure, this I'm point. Sure it's not he, what it was. 
at I this mean, point, he's got to be just utterly sick of it. Well, he listen when you're when you're super famous like Billy Joel, you have one advantage, which is the crowd is you you they don't need you to give up to to, to create the energy in them. They're so fucking hyped. There's so yeah. much energy in Madison Square Garden for Billy Joel that he can get carried you know carried away in that. It's like you know if you're it it. If your sexual partner is really, really into it, you know, you, you might get into it too. But I'm sure that if you, I'm sure he's he's not the Billy Joel that he once was with those old songs. I'm sure there's something, or maybe. Well, or maybe, sometimes you can't even hear the song. I mean, that's an interesting point. Sometimes you yeah. can't even hear the song because the audience is so loud at these concerts, you know, and he's singing an old favorite. Yeah. So I, I, I tell you this related story just because it's kind of related. And then we'll go back to Moses. So my friend Sasha, who sings with the Rolling Stones, who sings with us on Monday nights now. It was, I asked her, um, I said, did the Rolling Stones still rehearse? I mean, we're doing satisfaction for 50 years. Like, you know, what, what, what's, what's going on? More than 50 years. And she says to me, rehearse. She says, they rehearse. Keith Richards records the rehearsals. Then he goes back and listens to the recordings. And then he goes to the Stones and he gives them notes on what they're doing and not doing correctly. So that comes through. If, if you can still keep that interest in the the uh, quality of it i think then that helps motivate you to i don't know if richard is it. the exception necessarily or the rule regarding bands of that stature but i mean richard from what i hear yeah he is like that he's a real band leader yeah i, I don't know i mean paul mccartney's probably the same way i mean he, there's a reason these guys are on top of the world for 50 60 years that's not luck you know these are special special talents yeah but, it feels like seinfeld has that i don't know him at all, but just observing from the outside, it feels like he has that obsession with work and listening to things back and shaving down words and not just like, oh, hope this goes well. And it's so much <laughs> about the written, the written joke. Well, probably. Itself. We don't see a lot of Seinfeld around these parts. He never comes here. Um, Dan, not I never. never. He, he doesn't come. He doesn't, he doesn't come, come off. off. What were you about to say, Perry? I was about to say that I know that I'm generally not authorized to do this, but you guys are just glossing over the fact that Moses threw out child murders. Yeah, I think he was referring to I think he was referring to that 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 not to, in his own family, but to that case. Yeah, that case where oh, he okay. was connected to the, the same cult. That was the third family. But that was the, your cult, though. Yeah, that was the third family yeah. in your yeah. cult. So they tried to bring oh, okay. I, I, my great uncle in. Uh, the defense was trying to call him in to say that this mentally ill woman who's also struggling with postpartum depression did it because of his influence and they subpoenaed his tapes and uh, his, his sermons that were on these cassettes. So that's when he got in touch with us to get our story straight. He's like, if they're reaching out, just like, don't say anything. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know you were that directly involved. Maybe I misheard you, but I thought it was just that, that the heat was on cults in general after that. Case. No, it was just because of that. Uh, it was one of the angles that the defense took, but I don't think it's widely reported on that that she was a part of a failing cult, which is like it's not beneficial yeah, now because now I have to describe what this cult is and I have to get people on board to even care. Like, now, this is obviously a book deal waiting to happen. Our dear friend that I mentioned earlier, Phil Hanley, got a pretty good check, I think, for his book about dyslexia. That's nothing compared to your shit. <laughs> yeah. So why uh, don't murder? you have a book deal? I don't know this if you is, want a book is, deal. Um, I got to learn how to write. Oh, you'll find somebody to do write. that for you. But somebody uh, can do that for you. I can help yeah. you. Periel can do it. She's a great okay. typist. She does 60 words a minute. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be great. I just don't 
I just feel really insecure about anything that's uh, school related or left brain related. I, I think. Well, but somebody can jobs. do that for you. You've the hardest part yeah. of the story. Now you've got to pitch it to a publishing. I don't know what your financial situation is, but I think I could get you a hundred thousand dollar advance. That <laughs> <laughs> I, I trust that coming from you. Yeah, and I don't you know what the hell I'm talking about. You but don't need take twenty percent. No, I, I, yeah, I, it takes twenty percent. I'm not going to get you anything. Come on, you scrape a little off the I'm top. I'm not going to get you anything. But I think whoever your manager is, or whoever any somebody that works with you is, yeah. could probably score that kind of money. I think. And I don't move, know. You movie, obviously. I think I'm ready. I want to... first one thing at a time. If the book sells well, <laughs> then we'll deal with the movie. Let's get him as advance, and then we'll talk. <laughs> Then we'll talk. I think the whole thing is I think now for the first time is why I'm talking about it publicly. I'm ready to take it on because I didn't want to just be my story. Didn't want it to be just the sad thing. And then you're getting left. Or a one person show talking about bigly about producing you. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that see, that would be great. That I would get really excited. Or Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow told us directly in his own from his own mouth that he's more about the story than about the funny. Now, you're funny, too, but that's the reason he gave Gary Goldman a special. I, when Gary Goldman got a special, I actually emailed him. I said, hey, you know, uh, I, I, you know, wouldn't mind a special because because <laughs> Judd Apatow produced it. Yeah. And Judd was like, well, my plate is full right now. But J- Judd said that w- the reason he gave produced Gary special because Gary had a great story about being depressed, about having, um, I think, electroshock therapy. That's right. Amy Schumer. She, he liked her story years ago when when he signed on with Trainwreck. He would surely like your story. I don't know if he if you've spoken him or not, but no, no. And I mean, it's it's that's completely on me. It's the first time I feel comfortable uh, talking about it. Anyway, I, I feel more confident than ever that Moses has got some great things ahead of him. I can't guarantee stardom, but I do think one hundred thousand dollars you guarantee. <laughs> I can't I well, can't guarantee you that, that either, but I think it's I think that at least 50. <laughs> <laughs> that's severe. It's a 50 percent cut. Listen, this kid never went to school. He's not going to know. Now, We're going to get you a thousand dollars, kid. Now, uh, do you are you are you are you have one of these savior combat? We we're talking to Justin McKinney here a few weeks ago, and his family is in pretty bad shape, too. And he made some money early on and he was so desperate to help out his family that he gambled He didn't gamble. He well, he sort of gambled. He put it all into these risky stocks because he wanted to save his family and he lost everything. And he, now he's back and he's doing OK. But do you is your family like like you feel like you need to be the savior of the family? Um, yes, sometimes. Yeah, I don't do stocks, but I do send them money often. And I have no safety net. There's no backup plan if everything goes to shit tomorrow. Well, the movie, we have no, and the, the and movie. And then we have a and the, guarantee. What, what I'm trying to say is be careful when you, yeah. you get too anxious to save your family and you and you and you and you and you, and you act imprudently. It's getting worse because I noticed that sometimes I'll take on relationships and it's not the current situation, current girlfriend, but people that maybe do have a lot of problems are a little out there because I don't have to focus on my own problems Mm. if they're if they're more messed up. If I can save them, then I feel good about myself. And it's evidence that I've dug myself out of this hole of being this weird religious cult kid, no friends, uh, hate and just strife. It feels like I'm out if I have. Not just I can afford a meal, but I can afford to give it to someone else. Um, so I noticed the, a pretty bad pattern of trying to do that or looking for people um, that I could take care of. Yeah, but you see, right, okay. We have to get him a really good Jewish therapist. Yeah. That's what. Well, we, they cost 200 bucks an hour. Yeah, well, they're on a sliding scale. Some are, some aren't. And um, that'd be worth it. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It sounds like he's fairly well adjusted. Of course, I've only spoken to him for. I know this hour, but he may not need therapy. Some people can actually get through those kinds of horrible situations and still be in decent shape. Have uh, you ever been to therapy? 
Of course I have, yeah. And did you find it helpful? Not no, overwhelmingly, no. Really? No, Noam, look at the look on his face. Well, Noam's he, a therapy skeptic. No, he doesn't believe in therapy. He's a, he's a skeptic. No, I, I feel like I got bored in it. And I know it's like dating. We have to find multiple ones, but I tried three and I was like, oh, I guess therapy just does it work. No, like no, no. Three people. But I, yeah, and it feels like this huge thing I have to take on. You have to find yeah, the right person. It's a big... Sometimes they're just like, this is good and conducive because it's a show it's entertainment but sometimes you feel like they ask questions just to get right, well, <laughs> right. Yeah, and then we do well, how'd she do it she drowned the kids <laughs> one by one or two at a time right 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 well i always felt that like i was entertaining in therapy and i thought well, why should i be paying the same money as somebody who's boring you for an hour when right. i'm telling you great stories right my you friend know. had a therapist who fell asleep while she was um <sighs> talking to him and her brother was killed in September 11th. So it wasn't. Uh, he's like, heard it. <laughs> Saw the coverage. Do you guys ever get that? As a, it's it, they mean it as a compliment, but sometimes it hurts. But like, oh, we fall. I fall asleep to your podcast. <laughs> oh, I never heard that, but that would be people, horrible. People do it on because they have so much uh, anxiety in their head that they'll put something on and it relaxes. Them oh, hear you well, talk. I guess I'm not, uh... I think that if you have a problem with something, anger or uh I don't know, some kind of tick, the, the cognitive some kind of tick. Therapy. Well, phobias are, can can be can be well, treated. Phobia, with, yeah, I, I with, imagine there's uh, some strategy to teach somebody to breathe or whatever it is, so they don't lose their temper. So I, I, I'll give therapy. That's therapy. I, I give it that. I also, um, I don't know, but but the the idea of just you know talking about your problems, I think, is healthy. But the idea that a therapist, you know, after from seven years of education has some, you know, scientific way to listen to your problems and, and then tell you something that's going I I'm just very skeptical. No, that. I don't think that's what it is, though. I think that. But he, there's also medication that is proven very helpful for people as well. Yes, I believe in medication. But I mean, I think it's a therapist, you know, gives a good therapist gives people tools to deal with the different things that they struggle with. I mean, I think oftentimes we get, we're, we're so wrapped up in our own narrative. It's very difficult to zoom out and be objective and see our way um, out of that path. The problem is that you have five different therapists. They'll tell you five different things. It, 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 it's, it's just not scientific. I, I, I think that, and I keep feels, telling you that not good to talk about your problems. That's I fine, that. but not everything has to be scientific to be valuable. No, but I'm saying you can talk to a friend. I I, I don't know. I don't listen. If, if therapy, well, a friend's probably not going to want to sit there and listen to you, and you probably not, won't necessarily want to confide in a friend all your deepest darkest secrets. I mean, certainly Moses was forthcoming to us, but there's there's things he wouldn't he wouldn't tell uh, us, but that he might tell a therapist. Uh, fine. I, I don't. I don't maybe. Have to go to therapy. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. We people like Norman and I try to argue our way out of therapy. Of like, yeah, no one is going to know exactly my situation. Have the best thing. I, I do think it is conducive to yes to talk out your problems, say them out loud. Uh, a lot of thoughts they don't hold their power anymore when you have to put it into words and say it to another human being. And personally, that's how I was was deprogrammed is just having to say it out loud to someone that I had a crush on. It was as simple as that. Now your parents. They weren't the best parents, I guess, but they gave you that hair and you have to. It might go. I mean, my dad's got no hair and he's wearing bandanas and not pulling them off. He's not. Well, I would just say uh, 
profit from the time that you have left? I guess it comes from your mom's side. I think he had a great head of hair. My mom's grandpa. Even when he was embalmed, it was glistening. I mean, you had, you do have a joke in your act about uh, that uh, you you grew up poor, but you look like an asshole rich kid. And yeah. I, I think there's some act. I think there's something to that. <laughs> yeah, that is the immediate vibe. Even if I say it, be like, nah, not him. You bought that story from someone very, dying. Your in teeth a are too good. I teeth think. are too. I should, I should, I should, one thing should be off. Should, like mess up a tooth. I need a scar or something. But, but yeah, that's a good title. Good teeth. Good teeth. Good teeth. Like a Disney Channel <laughs> villain. Yeah. <laughs> This is a bad boy in the Disney channel. But yeah, I noticed that this feeling of being you learn a lot about yourself with how you're perceived the second you get on stage <laughs> and what people think of you. And uh, yeah, it's immediately like, asshole. Like, I can't <laughs> yell immediately. I got to be praying. Hey, fuck. Before we go, um, just because it's interesting, uh, does anybody have any comments about this new Kanye West thing with the anti-Semitic remarks and Tucker Carlson covering room, all that stuff? Well, that's a pretty big topic uh, to, to get into as a, in the last couple of minutes, people are trying to fall asleep. Uh, he just understands how to be famous and how to keep attention. So he'll just say whatever's the most litigious thing. And I don't think he's got a lot of morals behind it. I think it's really just uh, someone flailing in the wind that knows how to be an entertainer, even if it means people hate him. At least people are talking about him. Well, I don't I mean, he certainly knows how to keep his name in the headlines. I don't know if he would go that far just to keep his name in the headline. I mean, it might just be that he's just not right in the head to, to say something that outrageous going death con three on the Jewish people. Uh, sounds like somebody that's off his meds to me. OK, but people say that about Kanye all the time, that he's mentally ill. And my issue with that is that, I mean, just that that well may be the case. I mean, I think he said himself that he's bipolar, but there are plenty of people who have mental illness that I mean, you can't just dismiss everything he says because he's mentally ill. Look, I'm sorry, I have a hard time taking black people seriously as anti-Semites. I just, you know, for some they're, reason, there's struggle. <laughs> yeah. I, I, like a white anti-Semite scares me and a black one. I'm like, ah, he doesn't mean it. Well, Dan, uh, I have <laughs> I have noticed with my generation, it, it, it does become a cop out where we could just say oh, I'm mentally ill for just being shitty to people and just acknowledging if a problem or acknowledging you struggle with depression is not a scapegoat. It's not an excuse. It's like, OK, yeah, but you still did the shitty thing. I want to say something in a moment of a seriousness to Dan that um, you should go look at the Anti-Defamation League heat map that shows which neighborhoods are where Jews are beaten up. And uh, you would start taking that more seriously. The, the New York is the is the has the highest number of um, the, and, and the other of. Uh, Blue cities, urban areas have the overwhelming majority of all the violent crimes committed, hate crimes committed against Jews, and more hate crimes are committed against Jews than any other group in America. So uh, I know what you're saying, but don't dismiss it. It, it filters down, and it's dangerous. Ha- having said that, I I I do forgive mental. If somebody's mentally ill, they're mentally ill, and and you know I I don't I don't begrudge somebody every you know little joke about you know. Like, uh, I don't like they're teaching my kid Kwanzaa. I don't believe in Kwanzaa. I wish they give him Hanukkah. At least he might make some money. Like, you know, that I, I would need to know all, more about the person before I would decide that that is some sort of hateful joke because it's, it could be just a joke. You know, he also said that um, 
black people can't be anti-Semites because they're Jews. So, uh, you know, I don't know. He said he said a lot of things. I think that, um, you know, he put Candace Owens and himself in White Lives Matter shirts. He went on Tucker Carlson. I mean, I think Moses is right. He's he's doing the the exact thing that is going to garner the strongest reaction. Yeah, so Trump won. It's like everyone was talking about him. Now, the problem is, yes, it has real world consequences. Now someone sees him talking about Jews and they feel more emboldened if they were the type of person to to beat a Jewish person up on the street. Yeah. This I mean, I'm not, I think, listen, I think it's fucked up. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But, um... well, okay, let me, let me, let's, so I can tell you about this, this thing about kids related to this, about my son. So, in, in Los Angeles this week, I don't know if you saw it, the uh, the head of the city council in Los Angeles had to resign because she referred to the adopted son of one of the white city council members, I think I'm getting the story correct, as this little monkey he carries around as an accessory. This oh. is what the, the, the uh, you know, person of color Hispanic city council member said about the, the black adopted son of a white city council member. And she said it to other hispanic council members and around there so you know it seems to me with the expectation that this would be okay in that group right and it was just ironic this was the same week that my my son learned in school that um only white people can be racist so this is what they're teaching my my son only white people can be racist and um you know I just think that anybody, anybody who hates somebody because of the color of their skin or, you know, I know Jews are not a race, but the Nazis consider them a race. But and any of that is racism. And um, I just think it's it's intellectually unserious to think that uh, the feeling is is less wrong or less ugly because of the skin color of the person who I, I don't think it's less wrong or less ugly. I'm saying what scares me more on a visceral level, uh, and what scares me more on a visceral level is a white person saying the same thing that Kanye said. Why does that scare you more? I, I think because I think two reasons. Number one, white people have proven quite adept at putting their uh, their hatred into 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 practice. I'm talking about them in particular. There you go again. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Although, Real world example. What's with you people? Get over the Nazis already. Go ahead. And, um, <laughs> and I don't know. I just, uh, because black people are, are, are fellow minorities and fellow persecuted people, for some reason, I I, I, I don't think they're, I, you know, I, I just, I don't, it doesn't hit me the same way. Um, I, I even, if, even if that's illogical, by the way, it doesn't hit me the same way. Yeah, no, I, I listen. I mean, I, I, I understand what you're saying. Maybe, maybe that's right. You, you imagine a, a more powerful group, whatever it is. I mean, I, I, I'm not one who tends to think that the Holocaust is is happening in America, um, because it happened in Nazi Germany. But I know people think that's very wrong of me to say that. But um, I think that you know, intellectually, we should demand. The, the same thing from everybody like you know the, it, the certain things are wrong and and certain kinds of reasoning is immoral and certain kinds of beliefs are are um uh um demonstrably 
illogical and hateful and unfair and can't be defended and um and it shouldn't matter what color color because in some way what you're saying dan i think emboldens this hispanic city councilwoman to call this little boy a monkey because i'm sure i'm sure in 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 arkansas it would be possible that a city council member would say that i'm telling you in los angeles there's no fucking way white people in the city council are calling a black child a monkey. This is Los Angeles. So what you're seeing is that, and, and these are the most woke people on earth, including the Hispanic people. This is this is the most liberal precinct on planet earth, maybe. And yet, because of what you kind of saying, this Hispanic woman thinks, well, the rules don't apply to me, right? Like it's and 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 we walk around thinking, oh, white people are the most racist people in the world. Because we've defined racism out of it, you know, as as a white. Thing. I didn't say that the most racist. I said what scares me on a visceral level. No, I'm saying I'm not. I'm I'm zooming out from you. I'm saying like we're told, like my kid is being taught, only white people can be racist, which is, you know, I get it. The racism is is hate plus power or whatever that thing is, but there is there is a danger to that, which is essentially taking the heat off people to say, well, I can do this. I'm a person of color. Wouldn't it be better if we said, well, no, nobody can talk that way. You know, you nobody can talk. doesn't matter what color you are. It's racism is racism. Anyway, so about I, Kanye West, if he's mentally ill, I would give him a pass. What are you going to do? Well, I think yeah. the th I think the real takeaway is that. Can, can I tell you something, Perry? My friend Wig, who died, right? He, yeah, was, he was he was he had um, manic depression. Yeah, I know. And um, he. And he, he died not long. He committed suicide. When and he and I were very, very close friends. When he had his manic episode, he held a bottle of ketchup over my head, and I thought he was going to kill me. Like he was like this. Oh, I thought he was pouring the ketchup on you. Like no, no, no. I thought he was going to eat you. Yeah. Maybe, maybe ready to smash me over the head with it. And he was a six foot one black guy, you know, black Puerto Rican guy. He he could have killed me, and. When he came down or when he when he exited his episode, I did not hold that against him. That was his mental illness. So if I can if I can forgive that, how could I then say if somebody says something crazy about Jews? No, that that's real. Like, you know, mental illness is mental illness. I'm not saying we, we should. No, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. I mean, I think, you know, the thing about Kanye and I personally do think that he is absolutely brilliant. Um, but I think that, you know, what's difficult to watch is that he, you know, it, it's very self-destructive. It's destructive behavior. But, you know, on the other side, and I think I hold sort of an unpopular opinion here. I think that, um, you know, he doesn't play by the rules that society or polite society in the entertainment industry has put forth is like, this is how you're supposed to act. And, you know, he goes on something like Tucker Carlson because somebody else um, won't have him. You know, he he's not going to be welcome on the 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 shows that are not you know i mean i can't stand tucker carlson i think he's i think the, i think the view would have con tucker no carlson. i don't think they would i yeah tucker carlson for because, sure because he because he cut around the crazy yeah to, to try to to 
try to hide it. He's disgusting. We know that. And 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 then um, Candace Owens, who a must also know that he's he's kind of crazy. B is using him as a beard kind of to try to make her seem some you know less more credible. I have to confess to being attracted to Candace Owens. And and C <laughs> now she's going to have to explain knows, away. You know, why all power. of a sudden it's okay for her to be associating with somebody who's making these anti-Semitic remarks. So yeah. she's in a bind. Uh, well, anyway. She went yeah. to my high school, by the way, Candace Owens, albeit uh, about 20 years later. Well, Mark Zuckerberg went to my high school. Oh, did he? Donald Trump went to my high school. Moses? I've never been to my family's been to my high school. Question. Moses, when you see Donald Trump, does it remind you of a cult? Uh, yes, it does. His people, when you when they would do those videos of outside, yes. But the guilty feeling is is uh the first visceral feeling is is a feeling of jealousy. It's like, oh, you got what we never could. You got success. And then it's of course all the hate, and this is embarrassing and this is stupid. Uh, but yeah. Definitely, definitely QAnon. Absolutely. Extreme beliefs that are acted on. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of organized religion has a lot of cult. Yeah. Well, obviously, it's a fine line but between cult and religion, you know. But Well, you get successful enough and you're no longer a cult. You are a mainstream religion. And I think Scientology is getting to that point. I mean, for the past 10 years, everyone's like, Scientology is crazy, crazy, crazy. And then slowly there's going to be a new crazy thing. There's QAnon, which is for people who can't afford Scientology. And Scientology is just going to become another Christianity or Mormon. There'll still be jokes about it, but it won't be, oh, this guy's a Scientologist, immediate laugh. Yeah, well, you wonder if all religions at some point didn't have to start with a lie. I mean... I don't know. I, I guess it can just bubble up the legends or something. But I mean, the Mormon religion certainly started with somebody bullshitting, right? Absolutely. Joseph Smith. And it's harder than ever to start one now because everything is recorded and a record. You could just back then you go out to the woods. I saw these plates and God said this and you didn't need like, OK, well, open up your phone. Let's see where if you were geotagged, if you were even in the woods. then. <laughs> Was there any, was there a cell phone tower that crossed? You could have been hearing, hearing this. Are you mentally ill? Yeah, they just have the language for it. And they had the benefit of no record. Well, also in the old. And, and, and what's, can I say, and what's, what's really, you know, exactly difficult to, to grapple with is that the Mormons are successful. They're decent. They're nice. They're beautiful. Like it's, it's hard to argue it's not an oppressive cult, you know, like, like I mean, maybe, whoa, maybe, whoa, maybe, whoa. maybe the, the polygamy aspect no, of it, of no. my part. but, but you look at the Romneys, whatever it is. And, and I mean, I've, I've met a lot of Mormons. I had a Mormon in my family one time. It, it seems to um, have some pretty okay results. Well, I'm going to tell you that, my best- you know, who's a Mormon, I think is the, the founder of JetBlue and Breeze. Breeze Look at Ryan Hamilton. Home. You don't get oh. nicer than Ryan Hamilton. First of all, he's now now flying daily uh, out of Westchester County to L.A. My best friend. You talk about convenience if you live in Westchester. Earl, if you're going to talk bad about Mormonism, I'm going to have to wish you a good day, sir. Listen to me. My best girlfriend is a former Mormon missionary. And what was her position? 
well, that depends on where she was positioned in front of the bishop at said time. And there, uh, I cannot tell you the number of sinister stories. And if you ever do get around to reading my first book, you can read all about it because it's some crazy fucked up shit that's going on in Mormonism. Anyway, why don't we why don't we save this for another uh, uh, another uh, episode? We have it's a big topic. Uh, I think it'd be a nice place to to put a bow on let's this. just end on a two-state solution do you think palestine and israel is a light <laughs> note to leave us oh on? well we certainly talk about that and um but uh moses you're on is tonight palestine? yeah <laughs> yeah israel palestine so we're gonna close out yeah um yeah three shows tonight tonight you have three yeah here yeah on a weekday, it's the best. Yeah, it's the hands. I only get one place. on one on a weekday. Maybe when they open up the new room at the McDonald's. Well, I've been away for like a month, so uh, sometimes, yeah, sometimes SD will do that. And yeah. you're leaving tomorrow, you said. Yeah, I'm. I'm leaving. I don't know if I could say. It. I'm shooting yeah. a sequel to a very popular comedy movie that didn't do well by the time it came out, and then retroactively became popular. Um, I'm getting out of plane tomorrow. Well, how big is the part? Uh, it's the lead, one of the leads. Wait a minute, you don't even need my fucking book deal. <laughs> the whole time I thought no. Uh, the Moses, movie industry's in the toilet. Moses needed gets, money. I'm getting paid in like a Foot Locker gift card. It is not what it used to be. Well, I'm sure you're getting paid decently, but um, wow. That's the poster for this movie is in the main room on the back wall. That's the main the room of what? Of, of the Comedy Cellar, the original McDougal Street room. The poster, the, the number one of this movie. Oh, is it half-baked? Yeah, confirm nor deny. Okay, legally, <laughs> legally. Um, well, I told you Moses was going places. I wasn't lying. Uh, but um, but I, I mean, yeah, this is uh the best place in the world. I'm still nervous to perform here because everyone does. It must be so very good. satisfying that you made it out, like that you yeah. came from such a low point. Like um, it must be extra gratifying. I would think. I I, I wouldn't know from personal experience, but to yeah. have, have been where you were. And now to be a starring in a film and you're, you know, that that has to be, I would have might have been a little bit extra, you know. I always yeah. wanted to come from nothing and succeed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. And I've accomplished, I've accomplished neither. Yeah, we got to go. <laughs> Podcast at ComedyCellar.com. Questions, comments, and suggestions. We thank Moses Storm. We wish him luck, uh, you know, uh, in his movie. Um, uh, special get- out on HBO called Trash White. Oh, good Lord, came out. this kid's got everything. Yeah, it's the first thing I, I directed, wrote, and I built the entire set for it. And it's on uh, HBO Max right now. It's called Trash White. Trash White instead of White Trash, Trash White. Mm. Okay, Moses Storm, uh, thank you for coming. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye.